Hello everyone, and welcome to the final episode of 2023 for It's Football, Not Soccer, a podcast dedicated to the beautiful game. It's been a very busy couple of weeks since the last episode, with holiday travels and taking time with family and friends being at the forefront of my hiatus the week off last week. As a result, a lot of football action has passed, and we'll be doing a quick touch on the leagues that went into their winter breaks before putting the main focus on the English leagues and some U.S. football news, specifically in regards to the NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League, and the U.S. Open Cup, because there has been a lot of chaos that has happened in the time since between now and last episode. In particular, we're going to briefly congratulate the 2023 Apertura Liga MX champions before checking on the standings of the Bundesliga, the two Bundesliga, the Frauen Bundesliga, and the English Women's Super League as they went into their winter breaks during our standard time last week. Afterwards, we'll be talking a bit about our standard recaps of the English Premier League, specifically with match days 18 through 20, and then the absolute mayhem that is the English Championship having match days 23 through 26 in such a short amount of time. So it's going to be a very, very busy time. Afterwards, we're going to recap the NWSL expansion draft, as well as talking about some news regarding MLS, Major League Soccer, and the U.S. Open Cup, mainly their attempt to actually get out of playing it. So we're going to talk about those at the tail end of this episode, a very big episode to wrap up 2023. So without further ado, let us get into it. Starting off, we're talking Liga MX on the 17th, so a while back at this rate, about a good 12 days ago, we finally found out who the 2023 Apertura champions were in Mexico's top level of football. So after a tough fought battle against Tigres at home that went into extra time, America came out on top of their 14th Liga MX title, well ahead of the rest of the crowd. All three goals were scored in extra time. Neither side was able to crack through in regulation. It was a very, very tough fought battle, and honestly, a very exciting game to watch. Um, all three goals scored in that one, so you had... Julian Quinones picking up the first goal in 91st minute, Richard Sanchez not too long afterwards, and then Jonathan Rodriguez picking up the nail in the coffin, giving Las Aguilas the 4-1 aggregate victory, and then, of course, the trophy presentation in front of their home faithful at El Estadio Azteca right there in Ciudad de México, right in the heart of México. So, of course, with that, Liga MX enters their winter break, and so in the coming months, we're going to see the 2024 Clausura, the second half of the season, where America will look to maintain their title, maintain themselves as the champions of the league. That will kick off actually not too far from now. On the 12th of January, we'll be back talking about Mexican football, the big bulk. Of course, we're going to be probably previewing that with any of the transfer news that has happened, because winter break means transfer season. So we'll see how things have gone who, you know, is in a better shape, worse shape, what have you. But of course, what's also important about this is that if Las Aguilas can repeat in the second half of the season, the clausura, they will be the season-long champs. They won't have to fight, but of course, that depends on how things go, because if there's a different champion in La clausura, they will fight them, both teams will fight each other in this ultimate, you know, one-off battle to see who is the season-long champs. But of course, Getting a little ahead of ourselves in that regard. There's a lot of time before that. That's not going to be until, oof, at this rate, May of 2024. So we have a bit of time. 
So we'll conclude with just really once again giving America, of course my favorite team, a much-deserved congratulations for their 14th title, really leading the league by a long shot. And then commiserations to Tigres for a well-fought battle, making it a very entertaining affair to wrap up the 2023 Apertura, probably the best result we could have gotten. With that, we'll pivot now to Germany, the Bundesliga, looking at how they go, how the sh- how the table stands moving into their winter break. So last match day of 2023 was a little while ago, but here are how the standings sit during the winter break. So Bayer Leverkusen, my top team, remain at the top of the table with 42 points. And then Bayern Munich find themselves in second with 38. However, they do have a game in hand. So that could be important at the later point of the season. Then, of course, in third place is Stuttgart with 34. And then Red Bulls Leipzig sitting in fourth in the final Champions League spot with 33 points. Borussia Dortmund then find themselves in the Europa League spot with 27 points. And then Eintracht Frankfurt sit in the Europa Conference League spot with 24 points. Tied with Hoffenheim and Freiburg. All on points, however, the goal differential ultimately giving them the edge. Rest of the table, the middle of the table, that really, you know, kind of goes any way, which way. You have Heidenheim, Wolfsburg, Augsburg, Borussia Mönchengladbach, Werder Bremen, Bochum, and Union Berlin all sitting in that middle of the table, kind of just fighting their way away from the relegation zone or up into the glorious zones that can give them some European competition. However, the bottom three, the very big important part, we have Mainz, Köln, and Darmstadt currently fighting for their lives in the table. All three have a tie on 10 points, which is kind of wild if we're being honest. Goal differential is the only thing that puts Mainz right now in the relegation playoff spot, and then the latter two currently in the automatic relegation places. Of course, the second half of the season is remains to be played, so we'll see what happens, however... You know, it's very much a danger zone for all three of those sides fighting for their lives. Second half of the season will resume on January 12th, same time that Liga MX comes back into action. So it's going to be a pretty packed January 12th. Honestly, these coming weeks in January is going to be pretty interesting, regardless how you put it. But we have a good bit of work. All those teams have a good bit of work to do before they can hopefully avoid dropping down into the two Bundesliga. But anyways, you know, winter break is here for them. They get the times to spend with their family, and that's honestly a fantastic thing. And so speaking of the two Bundesliga, we'll talk about how their standings look entering their winter break. So the current front runners of the two Bundesliga are currently Holstein Kiel, who lead the table with 35 points, followed by St. Pauli with 33 points in the second and last automatic promotion spot. Local rivals of St. Pauli, though, Hamburger, find themselves in third place and the promotion playoff spot with 31 points. Which means if the season ended today, we would see Hamburger take on Mainz for the right to stay in the Bundesliga. However, following that, it's the middle of the table, you know, obviously second level, not as much to fight for in regards to, you know, the grand scheme of things in Europe. So we have Fortuna Dusseldorf in fourth, followed by Greutherfurth, Paderborn, Hertha Berlin, Hanover, Elversburg, Nuremberg, Venn Wiesbaden, Karlsruhe, Magdeburg, Schalke, and Kaiserslautern. 
Finally, at the bottom three pot spots in the table, we have Hansa Rostock sitting in the relegation playoff spot with 17 points, with Eintracht Braunschweig sitting in the first of the two auto-relegation spots with 14 points, and then Osnabrück sitting in last with nine points. It has been a very, very tough season thus far for Osnabrück as they are really really trying to find anything, trying to tread water there in the bottom part of the second level table. So best of luck to them. But the second half of the season for the two Bundesliga will kick off a week after the top level on the 19th of January. So it'll be a little bit more time before we see the second level of German men's football back kicking. Moving down to the women's top flight in Germany, the Frauen Bundesliga. Here are how their standings sit entering their winter break. So the current league leaders and the only team that would automatically qualify for the knockout round, or actually the group stage round, of the European Champions League are Wolfsburg with 25 points. However, only one point behind them are Bayern Munich, the big, always historically dominant team in Germany no matter which level you're looking at, sitting with 24 points, only one point behind. And then you have Eintracht Frankfurt in third with 20 points, and that's a very valuable third place because the second and third place will have to fight their way through the you know qualification it's kind of like a bracket it's a really complex it's a really complex and convoluted system but ultimately they have to fight real hard just to get themselves some of that european glory so those second and third place teams have a lot more fighting before they even get to the women's champions league out there in europe so it'll be interesting to see with that. However, those are your second and third place teams, Bayern Munich and Frankfurt. Then there are middle of the table. You have Hoffenheim, Essen, Bayer Leverkusen, Werder Bremen, Freiburg, Köln, and then Red Bulls Leipzig. Bottom two teams on the table in the relegation zone are currently Nuremberg and Duisburg, who both sit with five and two points respectively. It has been a really tough season for Duisburg, who very much look like they're going down to the two Frauen Bundesliga come season's end. However, there still is a lot of time left to see how things can potentially change, if anything. Second half of the Frauen Bundesliga season will kick off on the 26th of January, so there's still pretty much a month until the Frauen Bundesliga gets back kicking and into action. So we'll see how that goes when we get there, but some pretty good results out of the Frauen Bundesliga in their winter break. Moving on now to the last league in their winter break that we have discussed over time, the English Women's Super League. Top level of women's football there in England. And currently the top team in the league is Chelsea, sitting in the only Champions League spot, much like Wolfsburg, with 25 points. Then Manchester City and Arsenal currently sit in second and third, tied with 22 points, with, of course, goal differential being the only thing that puts City ahead and just slightly in a better position to make a run for the title. Um, the middle of the table here in the Women's Super League, you have Manchester United, Liverpool, Tottenham Hotspur, Everton, Leicester City, Aston Villa, Brighton and Hove Albion, and finally West Ham United. Bristol City sit in last and the only relegation spot in the Women's Super League, tied with West Ham with on five points. However, their goal differential, which is a pretty rough one, is the only factor that would send them down to the second level if the season ended today. Of course, the second half of the season still remains, and that will kick off on the 20th of January, so just under a month, and we'll be back in action in the English Women's Super League.
And so with that, we're now going to move into really the big bulk of this episode today, starting off with the English Premier League, the top level of men's football there in England, match days 18 through 20. So match day 18 for the Premier League actually kicked off last Thursday on the 21st with a one-all draw between Crystal Palace and Brighton. And then, of course, it went over the course of this last weekend. Last Friday, we saw a one-all draw between Aston Villa and Sheffield United in the only match of the day. Saturday, the busiest day of this last weekend, we saw West Ham United actually upset Manchester United at home 2-0, a big result there. We saw Burnley, a team fighting for their lives in the relegation spot, upset Fulham on the road 2-0. Luton Town then upset Newcastle United, who is in a bit of quite a bit of poor form as of late. At home 1-0, a big there for big win there for Luton Town also in the relegation conversation. Bournemouth then picked up a narrow victory on the road 3-2 over Nottingham Forest. Spurs close 2-1 win at home over Everton, almost ranging into the, you know, upsettler if you will. And then Liverpool picked up a one-all draw with Arsenal. I had the joy of watching this one. That was a fantastic matchup, a very exciting matchup. And, of course, a historic rivalry derby between those two teams. And with a lot of potential implications at the top of the table concerning how where those two teams are currently related in that regard. Of note, though, there was one more game that was originally scheduled for that game that day. Manchester City and Brentford, that match was postponed, so that match will be made up in due time. However, it also doesn't mean Manchester City gets themselves that game in hand that could potentially prove fruitful in the later half of the season. Um, of course, then afterwards, Christmas Eve, one game on Christmas Eve. It was my Wolves, Wolverhampton Wanderers. Upsetting Chelsea at home 2-1, a fantastic gift to wrap up the match day for me. And just another example of Wolves being like the most... I don't understand it. We will lose to bad teams that we should beat, and then we will beat a team like Chelsea. That is why, you know, one of my friends sent me a really amusing meme. It's the, oh god, I accidentally, you know, help, I accidentally built a shelf meme, except... Help, we accidentally beat another top six team. It makes no sense. I'll take it, though. Three points is three points, and a big win for Wolves, and it was a fantastic New Year's Eve gift. Honest, not New Year's Eve. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Christmas Eve present for me there. But I just don't understand it, man. We are... Wolves is just the most agonizingly inconsistent team to watch in the Premier League. Well, that's that's obviously biased, but... I'm sure we're one of the most agonizingly inconsistent teams to watch. Just, there is no consistency. It is only chaos. Then as has been the trend as of late, match day 19 was yet another midweek match day. This time on Tuesday, Boxing Day, the very, very busy Boxing Day in England overall. On Boxing Day, we had ourselves Nottingham Forest getting another win. This one over Newcastle on the road, 3-1. Again, Newcastle in pretty poor form. Bournemouth then handily defeated Fulham at home, 3-0. Fulham also in some pretty rough form as of late. Luton Town get on, got a close win against Sheffield United, the battle against the relegation teams, 3-2 on the road. Liverpool handled their business against Burnley on the road, 2-0. Man United narrowly just narrowly avoided getting upset by Aston Villa at home, 3-2. Wednesday saw Wolves, my Wolves, handily defeating Brentford on the road, 4-1, a very comfortable victory there. 
Chelsea then had a close, close affair against Crystal Palace at home 2-1. And Manchester City took down Everton on the road 3-1 on Wednesday to wrap up that one. The match day then wrapped up yesterday, midweek match day chaos, with Brighton picking up a major upset of Spurs at home 4-2. And then later West Ham upsetting Arsenal on the road 2-0, really putting a pretty big dampener in Arsenal's uh, title hopes. It's been a rough going as of late for Arsenal. They have had multiple opportunities to finally really clamp down on their opponents, but they just have not been able to finish their games, and they're allowing Liverpool to start sneaking in there and get themselves some distance in the championship race, but we shall see. There's still a lot of time left. Of course, looking ahead now, Match Day 20 will go over the course of this weekend with tomorrow holding the bulk of the matches. If I remember correctly, yeah, tomorrow holding the bulk of the matches. Yeah, Saturday, I was a little confused. I got a little too used to the chaos that was these Friday-Saturday schedules. My mistake. However, tomorrow, bulk of the matches kicking off with Luton Town taking on Chelsea at 5.30 in the morning, Mountain Standard Time. All times in this podcast are Mountain Standard Time. After that, we'll see Aston Villa take on Burnley, Crystal Palace take on Brentford, Manchester City versus Sheffield United, and Wolves versus Everton in that big 8-in-the-morning slot, the big bulk of the slot. And finally, we'll see Nottingham Forest versus Manchester United at the 10.30-in-the-morning, the prime time Saturday slot. New Year's Eve this Sunday, it's going to be a doubleheader with Fulham versus Arsenal and Spurs versus Bournemouth, both at 7 in the morning, so decently early games. And then New Year's Day, we're going to see Liverpool take on Newcastle at 1 in the afternoon, the New Year's Day solo primetime match. And then finally on Tuesday, the match day will wrap up with West Ham taking on Brighton at 12.30 in the afternoon. What is my pick of the match day? Uh, this one's going to be a completely ironic pick. I'm going to be honest. Um, there, you know, In my mind, I was looking at these matches. There's no, There's no derbies. There's no major rivalry matches going on. And frankly, you know, it's just been, it's been a, you know, some of these matches aren't too intriguing. A lot of these matches, you have like top of the table teams taking on bottom of the table teams. Like prime example literally is like, um, where is it? Luton Town, Chelsea. That's, you know, on paper, not intriguing. It could be intriguing if Luton Town gets an upset, but of course, you know, on paper, not the most exciting thing. And so my ironic pick of the week is Crystal Palace versus Brentford a middle-of-the-table battle between 15th and 14th place, respectively, where both teams are only separated by a singular point. Both teams have been ravaged by injuries this year. Like, I my I was looking at it. It was a laundry list of injuries and a couple of suspensions for Brentford over red card troubles, so that's always fantastic. Uh, neither side has won in the last five tries. It's been five state straight draws between these two. And also, both teams are actually in pretty poor form. I think Brentford, if I remember correctly, is on a four-game losing streak. They are pretty poor right now. So, this has all the makings for a terrible matchup. But I ironically believe that this could spontaneously flare up, maybe become an you know intriguing affair. After all, both these teams are right there next to each other in the table. And we could see some fireworks. Who knows? Obviously, this could very easily be a miss. I kind of expect it to be a miss of a pick. But, you know, what can you do? My backup, though, 
is Liverpool Newcastle. That one's a good one. Top of the tight, top of the table. Newcastle's a pretty solid, been overall solid this year, but of course, these last handful of games they have just completely fallen apart out of nowhere. So I don't know. It's a little rough to take, rough to say, but that's why I said, you know, I'm ironically thinking Crystal Palace Brentford. That is my pick of the week. Um, we'll see whether or not I'm eating crow by next by the next episode. Because again, I fully believe that this could still be a completely terrible to watch match. But, but I am holding out hope that it could be decent. We'll see. But with that, we're going to move down into the second level of men's football there in England, the English Championship. And well, if you thought the English, if the Premier League has been busy, you know, all these holiday games. The English Championship has been no-lifing it. They have been just doing football non-stop. Four match days in our usual recap period, which is one Friday to another Friday. Match day 23 was last weekend. Match day 24 was all on Tuesday, a pure day of Boxing Day football. Match day 25 is actually all going on today. We actually already have one match wrapped up and like the big bulk of all the matches just kicked off so it is a busy busy time in the championship and then match day 26 is all going to be on new year's day so it is an insane time i really do hope that all the players are able to take care of themselves throughout all this chaos because you know this is i just don't know how a scheduler could look at this and go this is a fantastic idea because like this is a recipe for strained muscles, pulled muscles, even potentially some torn muscles. If we're being honest, I just don't get how you can demand four matches from these players in that short of a time. But you know they're athletes; they have been practicing conditioning for a long time for these kinds of stretches. But wow, that is a crowded schedule. For brevity, I'm honestly going to skip past the last two match days. Um, I would recap them, but I do really want to talk about these other things going on. Um, specifically the NWSL and the MLS U.S. Open Cup news. So we're going to skip past those ones, and we're going to focus on matches to come, starting with the match day 25 events going on. So earlier today, a match already wrapped up with Southampton narrowly taking down Plymouth Argyle at home 2-1. That was the early game that kicked off at 11 in the morning. Then we currently have, in progress, Birmingham City versus Bristol City. Cardiff City versus Leicester City, Coventry City versus Swansea City, Huddersfield Town versus Millbrough, Hull City versus Blackburn Rovers, Ipswich Town versus Queens Park Rangers, Millwall versus Norwich City, Preston North End versus Sheffield Wednesday, Rotherham United versus Well, apologies right there, my microphone just spontaneously disconnected on me so my apologies for you all there that was one of the funkier things i've had to happen in a while as i was saying though when it comes to games that are currently in progress right now all of them kicked off at 12:45 p.m so about 15 minutes ago i was saying i said preston north end versus sheffield wednesday rotherham united versus sunderland and then finally watford versus stoke city those are all the matches currently in progress once again i'd like to really apologize for that that was very funky to say the least my microphone just completely died out on me for that split second but we are back in action Um, however all those matches in progress you know last 10 15 minutes so 
Obviously, we'll talk about those next week once they have all wrapped up. However, the last game of the day to wrap up this very busy day of matches will be West Bromwich Albion versus Leeds United, which will actually be taking place at 1.15 this afternoon. So in about, actually in about 15 minutes, that match will kick off. And so, thankfully, my game of the match day is actually that one, West Brom versus Leeds, the battle between 5th and 4th in the English Championship table. Currently, there's a six-point gap between the two teams. However, this could be a pivotal match in the long run for positioning in the promotion playoff bracket. For those that may not know, teams three through six in the table of the English Championship will play in a little bracket to earn the very last spot, the third and last spot, to promotion to the English Premier League. So, in this weekend, in this game, this match day this matchup, it is a battle of two top ten average offenses. West Brom have a fantastic defense. They currently lead the league with 11 clean sheets, so they have been really good at preventing opponents from scoring. And of course, they also have a really tough opponent to face off against because Leeds have Jorginho Rudder, who is currently the top scoring chance creator in the league. He has been fantastic, a catalyst of the Leeds United offense this season. And so this one very easily becomes the pick of the week. It's going to be an exciting game, an exciting one today, kicking off in like 14 minutes as the recording this one, because it's being recorded right now at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Mountain Standard Time. So some fun stuff there, and of course there's just so many games going on right now. Then of course, coming up, their next match day will be the New Year's D- New Year's Day match day, match day 26. Going to be a very, very chaotic day. It'll kick off at 5.30 in the morning. Ouch. With Sunderland taking on Preston. Then the big bulk of the matches all at 8 in the morning, Mountain Standard Time. It'll be Blackburn versus Rotherham, Bristol versus Millwall, Leeds versus Birmingham, Leicester versus Huddersfield, Middlesbrough versus Coventry, Norwich versus Southampton, Plymouth versus Watford, QPR versus Cardiff, Stoke versus Ipswich, and Swansea versus West Brom in that middle 8 in the morning slot. Then the final game on New Year's Day will be Sheffield taking on Hull at 10.15 in the morning. Of course, once again, because there is still a match day currently going on right now, I will not have a pick of the match day for New Year's Day's match day. However, I'm sure there's going to be some very, very exciting football going on then. Something to just keep an eye out on. If you have, like, ESPN+, Plus, why not use it? You're going to be able to see some good, good games, to say the very least. So here's hoping for some good English football. Very chaotic time, though. Bless those guys. Best of luck. And, you know, hopefully no one gets hurt out of all this, because, yeah, this is a conditioning test. With that, we move on to something that I've been waiting to talk about a bit. I mentioned in the last episode, which came out on the 15th, that being the National Women's Soccer League and the expansion draft. That actually took place on the 15th, a couple of hours after complete after the conclusion of the you know recording the last episode and releasing it. And so essentially the expansion draft was held so that way the two new teams joining the NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League, Bay FC, who are located in San Jose, California, and then the Utah Royals in Salt Lake City, Utah, could help build up their rosters and prepare for their inaugural seasons in 2024. Well, not really inaugural for Utah. They existed in the league before. They folded and they're back again, so they get to do it again. So before their draft, 
there were an absurd amount of trades. I'm not even kidding. So, multiple teams were able to trade for complete protection from the expansion draft. This was new to me because I had never heard of that before in another league. I watch a lot of sport, American sports, but I had never heard of trading for complete protection from having players picked from. I knew you could create a list of like a handful of players that you do not want to get taken in the expansion draft. I never had heard of complete protection. And so something new learned here in the NWSL that is a system that is in place. So we're going to talk about all the trades, all of the gains, and just, just the absurd chaos that was the number of trades. And honestly, it all started a month ago. November 13th was the beginning of all of the trades to gain protection, and honestly, some of these moves made by the expansion teams were very savvy, especially coming forward with what's going to be gained potentially in the future. So on the 13th, the trades began as Orlando Pride were able to secure complete protection, making a trade with both Bay and Utah. So first, they gave Bay the 8th overall pick in the NWSL draft coming up in January in return for protection as well as $50,000 in allocation money. You know, take yourself those funds and prepare to maybe make some moves in free agency, transfers, what have you. Then, in order to get protection for from Utah, as well as a gain of $90,000, the Pride gave Utah Michaela Clough the first of the players to be exchanged to kick off the excuse me kick off the trading and so Clough in her last match you know only 24 years old going to be 25 this coming February this last season she had a pretty good season you know season 22 matches two goals one assist started 17 of those matches and a total of 1500 minutes played she had some pretty good she was a pretty good off the bench player and had herself a pretty good average you know a lot of accurate shots, some pretty solid good passing, and so a very good addition there, especially considering a new team. No, she did not get booked. She only got booked twice throughout the entire season, only two yellow cards. So she was honestly a very good midfielder, a good defensive midfielder for Utah to pick up early here. And already, you know, you, you could kind of see it as already making their draft pick in that regard, but however, you know, it was a good pick because in the expansion draft, you don't have to you can pick multiple players from one team so honestly a savvy trade getting themselves a very high draft pick and a good player so they got themselves some pretty good stuff in order to just in order for Orlando just to get that protection so a pretty interesting result there on the 13th though there was still one more trade we had Kansas City Current making their first move for protect draft protection as they picked up $175,000 and draft protection from Bay FC in return for Alex Loera. So Alex Loera, let's take a look at how she did this season for... Oh dear, I have... My little site that I was using just crashed on me. That's great. We love that. Okay. Yep, something is absolutely messing up. I apologize. Well, Alex Loreta was a key contributor regardless for Kansas City this season. A major move there, especially, you know, considering $175,000 worth for her. It was a very fa- a very savvy trade. Once again, 
Bay picking up essentially their draft pick and giving up some money in return. But for Kansas City, that's a big move. So that way they could get that protection, that draft protection early on, very early on, a month ago, and have to avoid the expansion draft completely in terms of Bay's choices. And here we go. I was finally able to pick up the notes for Alex Loera. She was a high draft pick, 36 overall in that 2021 NWSL draft. Fantastic career at Santa Clara University, D1 championship there in 2020. And also she has to her acclaim the fastest playoff goal in league history, four minutes in the semifinal of 2022. So there we go. Some little notes on Luera very early in her career overall, but a very big savvy pick, very savvy trade. And Kansas City, though, getting themselves another 175 grand to work with in this coming season. That was honestly a pretty good trade. A couple days later on the 17th, we had another little batch of trades, starting off with Racing Louisville, picking up some draft protection as they traded draft protection for the 15th, 34th overall pick, and then $235,000. So a pretty hefty price for Louisville to get protection from Bay. Two draft picks, which, you know, those can turn into some pretty good contributors. As well as 235000 That's some big allocation money for Bay early on as an expansion franchise. Then, that same day, San Diego Wave picked up their first bit of exemption as they made a deal with the Utah Royals as they were giving up Kaylee Riel for protection and $60,000 in allocation money, so they gained them some cash in return from Kaylee Riel. And well, Riel, she's a 27-year-old defender, had herself a pretty solid time there for San Diego this season, this last season. 19 matches played, 18 starts, and also overall, she obviously not very much active in the attacking realm. However, she was pretty good in possession and defense. She pretty won, she won a pretty good amount of duels. And of course, very disciplined. Only one yellow card, no red cards. That's always a big, big win, especially for a defender. Sometimes you can accidentally get yourself into those situations where you pick up some bookings, but only one yellow in 19 matches. That is quite clean defending, as well as also the fact that she was very effective in getting those aerial duels going up for those headers, a very key contributor there. So a big, big trade there as San Diego, you know, willing to give up Kaylee Riel, but Utah essentially making a draft pick right then and there. That same day, Utah made another deal, this time with North Carolina Courage. The Courage, given draft protection in return, oh wait, draft protection and $30,000 for two players, Emily Gray and Frankie Tagliaferri were sent over to Utah in return for the 30 grand and draft protection from the Royals. Well, looking at the players that were gained, Emily Gray, midfielder from the Courage, a very young prospect to say the least. She was the third overall pick in last year's draft, the 2022 draft, and she only played really in the Challenge Cup, so not many stats there. However, a pair of assists, a promising promising future starter potentially in that regard. However, Frankie Tagliaferri, 24-year-old attacking midfielder, a lot more time there. Eight matches, picked up an assist, only three starts, so some very limited play time. However, she was very accurate with a lot of her passes and her crosses, um, held onto the ball quite well, and of course, very well disciplined, of course, very few um, 
actual play, though. And so, frankly, Tagliaferri, again, another one of those young prospects that could potentially do some good for the Utah Royals early. And, hey, a pair of players, a pair of promising young players to help build your roster to start is a good trade, in my opinion. Majority of the deals, though, because it was kind of silent for about a month in the NWSL trade market. The majority of the deals were done actually on the 12th of December, three days before the expansion draft, as everybody was trying to pick up some protection of some regard in order to make their day on the 15th a little less stressful. So Washington Spirit were the first team to make some moves as they picked up complete protection from the draft. First, making a trade with the Utah Royals as they gave up the 20 the 20th and 21st overall pick, so back-to-back picks, and then they were able to get the protection, and then they traded with Bay, only a a one-person transaction. Dorian Bailey sent out to San Jose in return for draft protection. Looking at Bailey, 20 games this season, 1,200 minutes, pretty effective tackler overall, 16 intercepted passes, and was very effective in the duel. A midfielder, a very good attacking, and just a very flexible midfielder, some very successful passes, very accurate with their passes, actually, a 72.7% pass success rate. That's honestly quite exciting to look at. Four shots on target, so not many two shots there. However, overall, she only got herself 14 starts out of the 20 that she played. So a very good, promising player once again for the Bay FC, the expansion squad joining the league. And so once again, some savvy trades there. She played her entire career prior to that with the Washington Spirit. So once again, a big, big trade there. Following that, we had Portland Thorns making a deal, this time with Bay as they were able to pick up protection and $75,000 in return for Emily Menges. Menges herself, a very experienced player, 31 years old. The defender played a lot of matches this season, 18 matches, 17 starts. Very good on those aerial duels and defensive duels. And this season overall, she had herself 1,500 minutes of play, a lot of accurate passes, a lot of good dribbling, and a lot of fantastic defending. All of her defensive metrics really good in the rates that she was winning tackles, that she was you know, fighting only one conceded penalty. That's one of the biggest things, that, especially for a center defensive you know, back. You're always a little worried about conceding those penalties because you're right there in the box. Only one out of the many, many tackles she made over this entire season. So a very, very good veteran presence for Bay to have in that defensive lineup. And honestly, you know, again, speaking to that discipline, she did not pick up a single yellow this entire season. That is something that is fantastic for a middle defender, an asset to have for Bay early on in your existence. Following that, the next deal that was made on this very, very, very busy day, New Jersey, New York, Gotham, were able to pick up draft protection from Utah as well as 150 grand for Mandy Hout, the starting goalkeeper in Gotham's uh, championship run, which, to say the very least, absolutely surprised me. I, I was not expecting for a trade like that to occur. I was... You know, I, I, you never expect for like one of your main goalkeepers to get, you know, s- sent away. But she was ma- just monumentally important to Gotham's run. She became just the third 
goalkeeper in the league's history to have a shutout in the first two playoff ex- appearances. 13 saves, two clean sheets. She was a very, very good goalkeeper this season for the Gotham. And so this was honestly a very savvy trade, in my opinion, for um, the Utah Royals. Of course, you know, she had that red card in the championship game. But, you know, I think that was very excusable. Um, You know, just a little bit of a mental error, but... She is a very good, promising player to have in between your pipes. 25 years old, and so she can be around for a little bit there. And honestly, just again, in my opinion, a very savvy deal made there by Utah to pick up a good presence to have in your goal, in your net. After that trade, we had Gotham picking up the complete protection in the draft by orchestrating a three-way trade with Bay and Racing Louisville. So Bay pick themselves up Ellie Jean from Gotham as well as 130 grand from Louisville. Louisville then picked up the 28th and 42nd overall picks. Gotham simply just wanted that draft protection. So a very interesting three-way trade. You don't see that very often in football if we're being honest, but this is an American league. So we're going to get some American aspects to say the very very excuse me, very very least. But Ellie Jean in addition there for the Brand new Bay squad looking to try and, again, bolstering up their lineup, essentially making their draft pick. Gene, 26 years old, another defender. Uh, Not too many, you know, not too many minutes played overall. 10 starts out of 16 matches. Not even 1,000 minutes played. She wasn't playing too often. However, you know, her stats don't really, you know, don't really impress to start. But, again, not too much has been happening. She... You know, Gotham had themselves a fantastic overall, you know, squad. So not as many chances for Gene to make an impact. However, it looks like Bay, they saw some promise with Gene, and so they made the trade, and they got her. And so now Bay has essentially made their pick, made their pick then for with Gotham. Following that major three-way trade, We had ourselves Kansas City Current picking up the complete protection as they made the deal with Utah. They gained themselves protection, 75 grand, as they gave up the fourth overall pick, as well as Kate Del Fava, to the Utah Royals. And honestly, this one was a pretty big price to pay, if I will admit, because Del Fava spent her first season there, you know, after being drafted. She actually... This kind of a return for Del Fava. She was actually with the original version of Utah in 2020, but then they folded. And though she, you know, started off in reserves to start, she has made a bit of an impact with Kansas City. She was a pretty big player on Kansas City's lineups throughout the season. 1,800 play, minutes played, 21 starts out of 22 games. A very good defender, to say the least, to have back there. The 25-year-old from Kenosha. And just, again, very accurate passing. Another key defender. And you can see kind of the trend throughout this entire trades process. was A lot of defenders and midfielders were actually being traded for. Not too many attackers were being, you know, attacking players were being, uh, you know, dealt as these players, you know, these teams really wanted to focus on defense. You know, after all the saying goes, defense wins championships. But to say the least, I was surprised by that kind of price. Very key player for Kansas City and the fourth overall pick. However, I do think they really did fear, 
uh, Utah coming in and making multiple picks from them in the upcoming trade. So to them, that was worth it. Portland then made another trade in order to pick up protection, their final complete protection, as they were able to make the deal. They gave up 10 grand, the 33rd overall pick in the draft, and then Hannah Betfort to pick up complete protection. So one of the more interesting uh, moves as they made the trade there with um, Utah. That's a high price tag, if I'm being honest. A majorly high price tag for complete protection. But evidently, again, Portland, another one of those players that had one of those teams that had some pretty good depth this season, and evidently they were not really looking forward to potentially having that depth removed because again, it doesn't you know, the expansion draft, it's not just one player gets picked and you're free for the rest of the draft. You can get double dipped on, triple dipped on. Um, and so it was a bit of a surprise to also see that high price tag. Bet for it though, you know. She was one of the early attackers to be essentially moved. She didn't play too many games, only four starts, 11 games. However, again, you know, factor in the fact they're giving up some money and a draft pick. It was a bit of a high price tag to get that protection, wrap-up protection with Utah. However, the Royals making themselves some moves, and Betford ultimately can be a promising addition in the future, 24 years old, and a good potential attacker up front. Following that trade with Portland, Angel City picked up complete draft protection as they gave Utah $100,000 and an international roster spot because, yeah, that's a thing with the NWSL. And then Bay, they gave Scarlet Camberos to Bay for protection and 50 grand. Scarlet Camberos, that was actually a pretty big one I immediately saw because I do pay attention to the social media of the Angel City faithful. That was a trade that a lot of them were sad to see happen because Scarlet is a favorite out there in Angel City. So Gamberos and her impact with Angel City this last season. 23 years old, a pretty young prospect. 11 starts in 20 games. A lot of times she was subbed off. However, another attacker, again, being moved on for some good passing overall, some pretty good shots, seven shots on target, one goal scored in her opportunities. So it was a header, too, a very accurate header. Uh, a couple of fouls conceded in one, however, you know, another young prospect there for Bay. And again, Angel City fans were actually kind of sad to see her go because they were really looking forward for her to be that catalyst for offense going into the future. And unfortunately, now she is. Moving up the 101 out to San Jose and no longer down there in Los Angeles. However, Angel City with complete protection. And finally, the day and all of these trades, my goodness, wrapped up with Houston Dash making a pair of trades to get complete draft protection. First off, they went to Utah. They gave Utah 50 grand and Cameron Tucker in order to get that draft protection. And then for Bay, they were able to pick up protection for the cost of $25,000 and Joel Anderson. So first off, we're going to look, starting off with Cameron Tucker, who was one of the last additions, the forward from Houston, well, not from Houston, from the Dash, as she was the first one to move in this one. Again, the attackers were the last additions through these trades. 
24 years old, two starts, 12 games, so very much a depth piece, very much a prospect in that regard. And then, of course, the last one was Joe L. Anderson being moved over to over to Bay in order to make room. Two seasons for the Dash. Not too many chances, though, only a pair of goals with Houston, so not too many attacking chances there. However, it's another case of those young prospects. 25, pretty young there. 13 starts, 18 games. As the midfielder, of course, you don't expect them to score goals too often. Passing, not as accurate in the attacking half as you'd hope. However, her own half, she can lock it down. She can make some accurate passes when needed. But with that, Houston was able to wrap up their complete exemption. And so finally, finally all of the trades were done. Like, when I was watching all these trades happen, it was absurd. I did not expect this many trades to be made for draft exemption. Again, I I never had heard of a complete team exemption. So it was kind of wild. However... After all these trades, O.L. Reign and the Chicago Red Stars were like two of the only teams left without any form of draft protection. They really just kind of looked at the situation and were ready to get drafted from. And so all the prote- all the teams that did not have protection released a list of protected players on the 13th. The handful of players that they did really, really did not want to see let, uh, see go. Uh, the draft was originally set for 12 team rounds, ended up only going seven rounds. And so both teams in the expansion draft started off by going with taking players from OL Reign. Starting off in the first round, it was Bay, since they were the brand new team. They picked up Alyssa Melanson from from excuse me the OL Reign. She was on loan in Norway actually in 2022, which is kind of interesting. She was a good player out there in Auburn. Well, the the pick for Melanson is a bit of an interesting one because Melanson actually did not play too many games with the Rain this season. Only four games, not a single start, 54 minutes of play. Again, she had that promising career out there at Auburn. However, just a bit of an interesting a pick, the first pick. However, the Rain did have a pretty good uh, selection of defended players, so it makes sense. Then. Utah, in that first round pick, they decided to go with O.L. Rain as well. Going ahead and um, picking up Elise Bennett. However, um, she was immediately traded on the 17th, so this kind of becomes a null pick. Bennett was picked in that first round, and immediately she was traded to San Diego in exchange for 40 grand, which... I kind of would question why you make the pick in the first place. There were more options on the rain. Um, Bennett, this last season for OL Rain was a solid option. You know, 24 years old, seven you know starts, 22 games played, a good potential attacker in the future. I just I do question why you would use a pick in your expansion draft only to then two days later get rid of them for 40 grand that that is a bit of a perplexing perplexing move to say the least in the second round the bay squad picked tess bode in forward from north carolina courage in order to join their squad their brand new squad the 24 year old player 12 starts out of 13 games she played a very good player in that attacking 
opportunity in that midfielding opportunity I my mistake very accurate in her passes a very successful passer long passing too pretty successful 60 percent so very good a catalyst potentially and she also did pick up herself a goal five shots on target and so her fouls a little bit less than she would have liked but a little bit more than she would have liked but however a very good very good addition for bay in that second round in that second round Utah made effectively their last pick of the expansion draft as they went on to pass in the fourth, third, fourth, and fifth rounds of this expansion draft. Uh, they just decided they were not going to choose anyone else, so their only person that they actually kept from this expansion draft was Paige Monaghan as they made the pick from Racing Louisville, deciding to take a flyer on this player in particular, deciding that they wanted to add her here, the 27-year-old attacker who in 14 starts, 22 games played, had herself a pretty solid time. Good passing, three goals on 12 shots on target, a pretty good conversion rate. One outside of the box, too. She had herself some pretty powerful ones. And she had one on her off foot, too. One on her left and two on her right. Some solid in the intercepting. Inter aerial duels, she wasn't as effective. She actually only won about a third of her aerial chances. However, again, a good potential attacker there early in existence. But then again, Utah just kind of just ended their day. They just decided we're done, and they decided to kind of hang on for the rest of it. And, you know, it was a very interesting... It, it was just interesting. You know, you, you trade away that first pick you make, and then going forward, you afterwards just kind of... just just kind of hang up the day it, it was just it was just a weird thing to me you know expansion drafts don't have you know you, you, this they're meant to help you out and just no just saying to pass on those last three picks was very interesting to me so the fourth round actually no the third round kicked off with the with bay fc making their next pick as they picked up rachel hill from san diego wave 28 year old attacker 16 starts, 18 games played. Again, aerial duels not so effective. However, her attacking opportunities, four shots on target on net, but her passing accuracy could have been a little bit better. She did have overall some pretty good passing, some good tackling. As the attacker, you know, not too many chances to get shots on goal, only six overall shots, but again, a good potential future option. Then the fourth round, they went to North Carolina. They double-dipped on North Carolina, going for Caitlin Rowland, the goalkeeper, the 29-year-old the goalkeeper who only started two games. She did pick up a clean sheet, so that's actually pretty good there. Only one, you know, a pair of, you know, starts overall. There's a solid option there, 29 years old. A good depth option, not too many options to use. Probably I would expect her to to be used in a similar role that North Carolina had, probably your bench keeper. And then they passed on their picks in the fifth and sixth round, and then in the seventh round, they made the pick Sierra Enge. A very, very big one there. This was a high-profile um, pick because, you know, Enge had been a very good player for... Um, San Diego this season, a very good promising player, uh, 23 years old. She was the 13th overall pick in this earlier, the draft this year. 
and then two goals in 10 matches, a very promising rookie. And there was actually some outrage. Some people were actually, you know, specifically mostly San Diego fans for obvious reasons, were actually upset that they drafted Eng. NG. They were, they were surprised that the Wave let her get drafted. And it was just a very interesting situation overall. But that was actually, like, super short-lived because two days later, NG was traded back to the Wave. Um, it was really weird. So she was traded back to the Wave two days later. She was actually traded to, I think, the Dash first. It was, like... It was a funky, funky sit of transactions, if I'm being honest. NG was all over the place these last couple of days because she was drafted by Bay. Let's see, where is the exact clause? So she was traded on... Yeah, she was traded to Houston for 50 grand, and then Houston sent her back to San Diego for 60 grand, the 40th overall pick, and Bell Breed. So again, that's one of those ones where I don't kind of I, I don't understand the logic of drafting a player and then immediately trading them for cash. I guess Bay felt that they could make the cash work, but honestly, Houston wins this entire situation because they picked up a solid midfielder option, 60 grand, so a 10 grand profit, and a draft pick. So I don't know, <laughs> just very chaotic. You know, I'm kind of rambling here, but I just it it's. You know, this has been one of the funkier things to cover in a while, just all of these transactions and the chaos and, you know, trying to see how this all fell apart. And I don't know, it's just some interesting moves to say the very least. I, I never would have expected an expansion draft this much chaos. I know drafts happen and there's all these sorts of trades, but my, my goodness. But with that all done and over with, all the trades, all that stuff, now both of these teams have pretty much largely constructed rosters and they can now start looking forward to the actual draft which is set to take place on the 12th of january very busy friday in january i know so something to keep in note this draft is set to start six o'clock mountain standard time consists of four rounds of 14 picks utah find themselves in a pretty good spot with first and third overall picks they also have themselves the second and eighth overall picks so gonna be a good first round i do hope this made sense to some to whoever's to y'all just it was very confusing for me to like try to trace this and write this down and look at all the chaos add in some technical difficulties i've been having today for whatever reason and you get yourself a recipe for just a ramble fest i do apologize in that regard but yeah it was a very chaotic expansion draft and now you know about a month of time off maybe make some deals some trades some free agency acquirements and more ex you know money available and then moving on to the actual 2024 NWSL draft soon enough. And so with that, we'll move on to our last topic of the day. Major League Soccer, the top level in U.S. men's football, attempting to abandon the U.S. Open Cup. So, same day that the NWSL draft is going on, December 15th, MLS made themselves a clown show once again. So it was reported that MLS had intended to pull its first team squads from the U.S. Open Cup, which is the most prestigious and longest-running tournament in U.S. football, a major event for all levels of play. They wanted to pull their top teams, as they actually wanted to send their semi-pro development teams to the tournament instead, 
citing a congested match schedule and a way to help the development of talent. Everybody knew this was a lie. It was a bold-faced lie. It didn't take long for people to realize none of what MLS said was true. It was all a scheme. And here's why. So first of all, the match schedule being congested. This only is a congested schedule in MLS because they created the absolute farce of a tournament that is called the League's Cup, which is a tournament that really has only benefited MLS teams. And then they also expanded their playoffs in that ugly fashion, I might have mentioned it before, where MLS, for some reason, made the first round of their playoffs a best-of-three series for no other reason than obviously trying to get as much playoff money, revenue as possible. It was absurd. And so... Those are the only reason why the MLS has a congested match schedule. It's of their own doing. It's not like the U.S. Open Cup adds that many more games. They were the ones that chose to add another bunch of games onto their schedule. Not, you know, the U.S. Open Cup. And back on the League's Cup ramble, you know, the League's Cup was just a complete mess. Liga MX teams, the Mexican teams that were involved, they never had home games. All the games were in the U.S., all the games were broadcast exclusively on MLS Season Pass, which is MLS's collaboration with Apple TV for 15 bucks a month, and you don't even get access to Apple TV's, like, you know, content. And, like, it was just a very obvious attempt to get as much money as possible because they can directly control that and get as much money as possible. It was just really terrible. For crying out loud, Liga MX was giving out one-month-long codes to fans, so that way they could watch the League's Cup for free instead of having to pay for a service that no Mexican football fan wanted to use. I should know, because I used that free month to watch the League's Cup. Because I didn't care. I was not a fan of it being on Season Pass. I wasn't, you know, wowed by the presentation of Season Pass. It It was very obviously for money. And so... You know, cited, you know, congested schedule. Of course it was congested because you made it congested on your own terms for money. And so the second claim that was for development is just also a lie. The only players that would get that benefit are the players that will immediately go play for MLS teams and probably not do a whole lot in the international scheme. For being honest, like a lot of the MLS players that appear on the U.S. men's national team, don't really do a whole lot. It, it, it's a rare that a player going through the MLS pipeline actually contributes, but also that's because, you know, the U.S. football system pay-for-play really kind of makes it impossible for any, you know, person who isn't, like, wealthy to really play football. So that's just a systemic issue. But, you know, really terrible excuse there, especially because when you realize this tournament, the U.S. Open Cup matters so much to lower-level squads. The USL Championship, USL 1, etc. Because of the fact that it's a major test of how those players are developing, and also they gain a major, major influx of money by playing those higher-profile, top-level teams that can afford to play those games, that can afford to just, you know, whatever, who can afford to, you know, these smaller teams need that money. They need that opportunity to play in those bigger markets, bigger crowds, and actually get something out of it. So if you take the MLS out, you take out a massive amount of money for those lower levels who are major in the development of talent in U.S. football. So it's counterintuitive. 
you take out MLS, you completely handicap, you completely kneecap the bottom levels of the American football pyramid. It, it, it's just a dumb, it, it's terrible. And, you know, you put the clues together because you realize the U.S. Open Cup is broadcast on ESPN, which means less money goes directly to MLS. So, whoa, less profit. No wonder they wanted to pull out their people because, you know, pull out their teams because they don't see it worth sending their top teams to really important games, if we're being honest, because the U.S. Open Cup means more than the MLS Cup ever will. Plain and simple. MLS might try to act like their trophy is the most important trophy in the United States, but no, it's the U.S. Open Cup by a long shot. And so, in every way, majorly scummy move. It was just a horrible, you know, some people were defending it, but frankly, it doesn't take a lot to look and see that it was just a bold-faced lie that they wanted to pull out just because they didn't get as much money as they wanted. So most football fans from outside the U.S. immediately were calling this out as terrible. Because this would be like as if the English Premier League decided, nah, we're not sending Chelsea, Liverpool, etc. to the FA Cup. Why? And so five days later, 20th of December, nine days ago, U.S. Soccer Federation announced that MLS could not pull their first team squads out of the tournament. And that's great. This is a sigh of relief because, after all, technically, MLS is violating rules by trying to do it. Um, but also, you know, it's a major relief because those those teams at the lower level still get that chance to play, get that money. But also, you still keep the integrity of the cup going. Like, it's so, so big. However, there's still negotiations going on. We haven't actually had any info since, like, that news release on the 20th. So who knows? We're kind of in limbo. Um, we're working with the assumption that the U.S. Open Cup will continue as normal. But also, it's hard to feel settled given how literally the MLS wanted to pull out. They tried to take themselves out. And it's it's just terrible. It's so terrible. And so, you know, really, you know, I started this podcast saying I wouldn't talk about MLS. And these are the kinds of actions that of why. MLS, in my eyes, are run by greedy owners who could care less about genuinely helping the sport of football grow in the U.S. They see fans as cash cows, and actions like this affirm that. Because instead of going to those smaller places, helping those people maybe out there fall in love with the sport of football, they would rather go back home, keep everything to themselves, and force those fans to have to go to overpriced games. You know, it's terrible. And so they were, you know, they were literally willing to abandon the longest-running and most prestigious tournament in U.S. football, all because they couldn't squeeze that extra money out of fans. It's absurd. Couple, the, couple this with the fact that they hate the idea of promotion relegation because that's less money for them, and you know all these other ideas. You know, it's it doesn't take a lot to see why I I choose to ignore MLS, why I choose to focus on the lower levels. You know. I do despise most of MLS. There's some teams where their owners are still pretty good. But a lot of the teams and a lot of the general owners suck. <laughs> and it's these kinds of moves that affirm that to me. So, you know, that's why, you know, even though for all these other countries, I will focus on their top level, second level, third level, you know, top level, second level of men and then the women's top, I focus on the U.S.'s second and third because of the fact that I do not want to focus on MLS because they're doing so many things that are just harmful to football in the United States. It's terrible. 
And so I'd rather use my time on those lower levels that are trying to improve themselves in the sport, you know, all that good stuff. I just had to talk about this because this was big news. This was huge news. Um, it's a terrible idea. It's a harmful idea. But I had to mention it because it's such big news for U.S. football. And I'm hoping going forward that USSF, Soccer Federation, will remain firm to keep MLS playing. Because if not, you know, losing MLS in the Open Cup will have such immense damage. Unless USSF does something big like, you know, I don't know reduces MLS's role, which I would be okay with that. USL Championship becomes top level, we'll see, but you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on this development as it goes. But I had to mention it, because it was such big news. And so, you know, this has been a long one. This has been the longest episode, which, hey, appropriate way to end off 2023. And so, you know, as I wrap it up, you know, holiday season, kind of in limbo. We're, we're right in between New Year's and Christmas. Uh, it's been another interesting week of football. Um, I'm glad that I would be able to talk about some of the things I did today. I was able to wrap up some of those loose ends, get into those winter breaks, those things I really wanted to talk about last week, but of course, traveling, all that good stuff. Um, also, my apologies for all the technical difficulties that have played the production of this episode. It has been absurd, so my apologies not expecting that with the end of my 2023 season. But it is wild to think this is the last episode of 2023, and you know, another year is going to pass, and you know, time, time just continues trucking on. So looking ahead, next week I should be able to get an episode out expected on the 5th, first episode of 2024, though I'm pretty sure I'm going to do recording on the 4th due to traveling, um, this time going in reverse. Um, Of course, we'll keep an eye out on other developments. We'll be seeing how the English leagues continue on. We might be seeing some of the transfers, the major transfer news coming up, because after all, there's been already some interesting moves to say the least. But, you know... I'd really like to, you know, wrap this up by thanking you all for joining me on this first short season, the 2023 season of the series, and I can't wait to join you all in 2024. Hope the holidays have been well for you all, however, for whatever form they have taken, and then we'll see you all next year, you know, however corny that statement will be. So once again, this has been the final episode of 2023 of It's Football, Not Soccer, with your host, Daniel Cervantes, and I will see you all next week.